0: Let's go on to, the church. to uh, those of you who are joining us online. I'm really grateful to be able to connect with you guys. Hope you had a gentle Christmas and a refreshing uh, new year. If you have a Bible, would you uh, turn it on or open with me to Romans uh, chapter 12? And uh, as you're finding your way to Romans chapter 12, let me just kind of take a moment to reintroduce myself as Pastor Kyle mentioned. I had the pleasure of being here a few um, months ago, and I was really encouraged by your time, uh, or by my time with you guys. Um, as you said, I'm a church planning resident based on a local church in Baltimore City, uh, preparing Lord willing to be sent out and to lead a team to start a new church in, in the Towson area sometime next year, and uh, I'm really honored and grateful to be here with you guys. You guys, um, I'm grateful for your, for your prayers, for your partnership in the gospel, and for your model of ministry. Uh, you guys are a church living life on life, life in community, and life on mission, And it's this picture of the church coming together as a community on mission that I want to share with you guys uh, from God's word. But before we move further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Good Father, I thank you for each person here, each person online. I'm grateful for their unique stories, for their, their unique gifts, for their unique passions. God, give them a rest for their souls as they look to you in all things. God, continue to use them, continue to grow them. Father, help them to experience the fullness of joy that could be found in an abiding life with you. And Father, help them to experience the the value and the importance of being a part of a grace-filled community. Father, bless our time this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a little bit about me. Um, My wife, Tiffany, who unfortunately isn't here, we've been married for uh, just over five and a half years, and we have two kids, Lucas and Lydia, who will be three and two in the next uh, few months, and parenthood has been one of my greatest joys. It just fills my heart. Even this morning, Lucas was uh, reciting Romans uh, 12, 13. Share with God's people who are in you. fills my heart with joy. But that's not to say that parenthood isn't without its sacrifices and challenges, likely something that many of you are more- even us, than us. And one of the most obvious sacrifices is rest. Like my default is tired. I'm tired right now. Like many of you are tired. Uh, which is why Tiffany and I, we've been brainstorming over the past couple months of hoping sometime later this year to get a vacation without the kids. Vacations are hard enough to plan under the best of circumstances, let alone when you're trying to plan around, child-friendly hikes and nap times, uh, and just the logistics of the travel itself. And uh, as we were brainstorming where we might go if this opportunity presented itself, we landed on going out to California to check out uh, Sequoia and Redwood National Park. If you've been there, you know I want to go out there. If you haven't, Google image it later today, you'll see why. It's spectacular. The waterfalls, cliffs, hiking, sunrises, sunsets, just utterly spectacular. But the thing that I'm most looking forward to is just to be able to stand in front and behold the glory and grandeur of those giant redwood trees. Just utterly amazing. 300 feet tall, wide enough to drive a car through. Just spectacular. But as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of something that I learned back in college. I think really adds to the mystery and marvel of these trees, and it's this. Despite their massive height, hundreds of feet tall, their roots, are actually quite shallow, only going down 6 to 12 feet deep, which to me makes utterly no sense whatsoever. Like in comparison, the One World Trade Center, the tallest building in the United States, it has foundations and supports that go down up to 150 feet. That makes sense because tall things aren't known for being particularly sturdy without a firm foundation. Remember the landing tower of Pisa? Not doing too hot. Or the feather flags that you often see outside churches, the slightest wind just knocks that thing over if it's not just weighted down by sand. <laughs> so it makes you wonder, how are these massive trees able to withstand all that they endure with such shallow roots? They have fires and floods and droughts and earthquakes. It's ridiculous. Well, they're able to do this because these trees grow and grows, a community of redwoods and they intertwine their roots with one another, spreading out over 100 feet, literally holding one another up. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of what the Christian community is supposed to look like, of the interconnectedness that God has designed for his people to have. We spread out. We interlock our lives. We carry one another's burdens. We hold one another up. It's beautiful. And it's a beautiful ideal But I recognize that it falls short of what many people experience. there's different reasons for that. For some people, it's by choice. They prefer to stay on the fringes. They don't want to invite people into their mess. They don't want to be involved in other people's messes. For other people, they desire this, but they don't know where to find it or don't know where to get started. And other people, they desire this, and they have been vulnerable in the past, but unfortunately, they've been hurt. Now... I don't mean to make a light of anybody's past or experience or situation, but I think it's, I think it's fair to say that we could all agree that it's easier to like the idea of community than it is actual community. And understandably so, because community is people and people are messy. We, we are messy, but despite our flaws, we were designed for community. We desperately need community. A couple of years ago, the Globe News ran a story that said that the greatest threat to middle-aged men wasn't obesity, wasn't cancer, it wasn't smoking, it was loneliness. The lack of true friends. Now, I know not everybody here is a middle-aged man, but perhaps that still rings true. It rings true for me. or I think something that we could all relate to, the tech culture that we live in, <clears throat> which, praise God, it has a lot of benefits, like the ability last week for your church to gather the ability to connect with people from all around the country. But it's got a shadow side as well. It's led to this increased inability to empathize and have healthy conversations. And it's led to this weird phenomenon of counterfeit community where we could have hundreds and thousands of social media followers. But how many true friends? People that we could call at any time of day when we have news to share or just need a friend to talk to. But I want us to see that God has designed for his people live in close community with one another and more than just desiring it for us god enables us to have this as he unites us together in the gospel to make it so and i think the best summary of this could be found in romans chapter 12. in this letter paul is writing to local churches in rome and this is a diverse group of people people with different uh religious upbringings different socioeconomic statuses and he tells them to be committed to the gospel and to be committed to one another. And he says, this is what it looks like to live as a biblical community. (laughs) So let's read from Romans chapter 12. If you're there, we're going to be starting in verse three. Paul says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This is a packed chapter. Even just reading, it feels like a fire hose. And in it, Paul gives roughly 25 different implications of what it looks like to live as a biblical community. But before we kind of jump in, I just want to provide a little bit of context to help us to make sense of it. Now, it's worth remembering that this chapter is a significant hinge point in Paul's letter. And chapter 12 is preceded by Romans 1 through 11. I learned that one in seminary. (laughs) (laughs) But it's important to know this because when Paul wrote this letter, he didn't put these chapter breaks in this. Later publishers put this to be able to help us see the structure of it. So if we read this chapter as a standalone list of commands, we'll miss out on the full meaning and the heart behind it. And while I would love to do an overview of each book of the Bible, for the sake of time, I'll just say this. Romans 1 through 11 is all about the gospel. That despite our shortcomings and our disobedience, despite our inability to make our way to God, God made a way in Christ. That Jesus invites us to come to him The one who lived the life we couldn't live died in our place and was rose again victorious over sin and death. And if we come to Jesus, he will adopt us into his family and declare us righteous before God by grace. Paul unpacks this for 11 chapters. And then here at the end, he says, "And now in light of all of that, in light of the good news of the gospel, in light of the fact that you've been free from trying to earn your way to God, and now we're free to be the men and women of God that he's created you to be, Here is what it looks like to live as an interconnected gospel centered community. And if there's one main idea that you get from our passage and our time this morning, it's this. I'll say it again. God designed us to live as an interconnected, gospel centered community. And I think we could summarize all these gospel implications in this chapter into ten, we'll go through them quickly, ten of one another's that God wants to work in us and through us. And they're these. We belong to one another. We are gifted for one another. We love one another. We care for one another. We honor one another. We motivate one another. We share with one another. We rejoice with one another. We mourn with one another. And we endure with one another. All by God's grace. So the first implication, we belong to one another. Look at verse 5. He says, just as all the parts of the body are connected and belong together in Christ, we, though many, are made one. Like, it would be super weird if after we've been dismissed and you're walking to your car in the parking lot, you just saw a pair of legs walking. That would be really weird because legs weren't designed to be disconnected from the body. And similarly, we weren't designed to follow Jesus apart from his people. The Bible says this about Christians, that the Christians are the body of Christ with Jesus as his head. You can't separate those two things. It would be like if my wife told me, hey, Orlando, I love you, especially your head but your body. (laughs) Eh. Well, one, that would be crushing. But two, that would be a little bit hard to be able to work out because my head and my body are a bit of a package deal. You can't separate those any more than you can separate your union with Jesus, with your fellowship with other Christians, and when all these one another's that you see in Romans chapter 12, you're gonna see again and again. It's showing us that the Christian life is meant to be lived with other people. You can't one another by yourself. Trying to do Christianity alone is like trying to build a human pyramid by yourself. It would look weird. It would look off because you would be trying to do something that was inherently meant to be done with other people. And God desires us to live with other people. And more, God is the one that connects us together. Because we are not connected together by our ethnicities. We're not connected together by our socioeconomic statuses. We're definitely not connected together by our politics. We're not connected together by our preferences. We are connected together by the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us together as friends and more makes us into a faith family. And all... That the gospel does enables us to work out the messiness of living in biblical community together. The second implication: we are gifted for one another. In verse six, Paul starts listing different gifts. And just a quick note: these lists. It, this isn't an exhaustive list. The purpose isn't to read through this list and think, "Hey, which one do I have? Which one's me?" Or go home after and take a spiritual gift test. Like, don't do that. Or Actually, I'm not sure how you guys land on that. It could be helpful. (laughs) But I think, in fact, the best way to be able to figure out what your gifting is, is in community. Share. Hey, here's how you bless me. Hear from other people. How do I bless you? And what Paul is saying here is that God has gifted every one of you by the Holy Spirit with gifts for the building up of the community. And I think even more than that, God is saying that each one of you is a gift to your community. And as you think through these gifts, our gifts may be different and they may have different functions, but that's totally okay. In fact, as Paul says, this is exactly the point. Like again, think of the image of the body. A body with four arms and four eyes, no legs, no mouth. It wouldn't function properly. It'd be like a goalie, or sorry, it'd be like a soccer team with with all fours but no goalie. It's not going to do too well. But God has created each of you with gifts that are of immense value to your community. All of them coming together to build one another up. And our gifts, they should never lead toward boasting or pride. Because gifts things are just that, they are gifts from God. So what they should do is, we should, and as a result, we should praise God for the diversity of gifts, for the diversity of people, and use whatever God has given us to equip and resource and build others up. Like a car. Car is made up of thousands of parts, but that doesn't make any one part unimportant. Like, my engine may be running fine, but if my tires were flat, I'm stuck at home. Like, my transition may be running smoothly, but if my brakes don't work, It does me no good. And in a similar way, the Christian community is most healthy when we come together and we serve and we grow as one. And as you reflect on this and you hear about what your giftings, regardless of what they are or in light of what they are, we all have an important role to play in the community of God's people and in the mission of God. Third implication, we love one another. Look at verse 9. It says, Love must be sincere. In the original language, it literally means let your love be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrite that we get in the Greek, a hypocrite was a stage actor who wore a mask. Paul is saying, let your, your love shouldn't be fake. Your love instead should be real. It should be genuine. And this may sound totally normal in, in our context, but in the first century, this would have sounded really weird. The word that Paul uses for love here is agape, which was an uncommon term used in its time. It describes God love, this deep, authentic, selfless commitment to people. And to love like that would have been ridiculed as a sign of weakness in the and roman culture. But in following the model of Jesus, that's how Christians were to love one another with all sincerity, with all humility. In the Roman church, this was filled with all different types of people. It had masters and it had servants. It had some homeless people, some migrant workers, some wealthy elites. Despite all their differences, they had a genuine love for one another. And as we know, it turned the world upside down. And a famous quote by Francis Schaefer, who's a famous apologist, he said that the church's unity and love for each other is the most convincing proof to the outside world of God's love. And this isn't an easy love. But it's a powerful love. A true love that is there in the messiness, and when needed, a love that is there and willing to correct or pull a friend from harm's way. Because as we see, true love also hates certain things. God wants us to have a holy love. And here Paul uses two strong words. He says, hate what is evil and cling or hold fast to what is good. Now, I know this could be challenging in our day because love is often presented as uh, you have to agree or go along with what anybody says, but true love would never genuinely allow someone to go down a path hard. Like, how would you love your children in a way when it's just you do whatever, you allow them to do whatever they say? Like if Lucas, my son, he was playing in the middle of the street or he was hitting his sister, I would never say, hey, because I love you, Lucas, it don't matter. It wouldn't make any sense because it would be loving both to him and to her for me to try to correct that. And this is important because when we address sins in people's lives and when other people address sins in our lives, it's never meant to be condemning, but it's always meant to be an invitation to something greater, namely more of Jesus, more of Jesus in our community, more of Jesus in us. Encouragement is our chief language but we also want to be able to love one another enough to be able to work through hard things together because it's worth it. Friends, true love doesn't exist in the absence of judgment. True love exists in the presence of it. To see the truth of who that other person is, all of their faults, all of their failings, and make a judgment, a decision that says, I'm still going to love you. Like Tim Keller says in his book, Meaning of Marriage, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting it's superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. Which is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. But for this type of love to exist in us, that means we have to be committed to a people. To let them really get to know us and for us to really get to know them and invite them to speak into our lives as we journey together toward Jesus. Because oftentimes, the sins that are most damaging in our lives are the sins that we're not aware of, or at least not the full extent of them. And so to have a community that knows you deeply, encourages you regularly, and loves you enough to help you spot and work through sins and blind spots is a truly wonderful thing. The fourth implication, we're told to care for one another. Verse 10 begins be devoted to one another in love. Or as some translations say, love one another with brotherly affection. This is a great phrase. In it, Paul uses two compound words for love. He says, Philostorge, which is a devoted love, like a love for family, and Philadelphia, A deep friend love or brotherly affection. Think about your families and the responsibility that you assume for their care. I think about my wife and kids. In Romans 12, we're not told just to do stuff. We're told to feel something. We're told to have affections, to see the person sitting next to you as family. And this is a call to be somewhat vulnerable, And this is a call to actually commit to and be intentional about caring for one another. Because we want to avoid the very easy tendency that we have to focus on ourselves. For instead, we need to recognize that God has actually designed our needs to be met by others and for us to be able to meet the needs of others. And this compelling community had a profound impression on those who came in contact with the early church. As I was studying for this, I I was astounded reading the words of this philosopher, Aristides, as he described Christians in his report to the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Emperor, just a generation after Paul's letter. And he said this, describing the Christians, he said, now the Christians go all their way with humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. They rescue the orphan from the person who does them violence. He who has given to him, who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christian finds a stranger, they bring him to their home and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but are those who are brothers after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear of any of their number who are in prison or oppressed, For the name of the Messiah, they all provide for their needs. And if it is possible to redeem them, they set them free. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have food to spare, they will fast for two or three days in order that they might supply the needs of their necessities. What a beautiful picture that is. When someone is in need, others come around them with all humility and with all grace to care for each other. And this is still true today. This is the authentic community that God has designed for his people to have, including you. The fifth implication, we honor one another. We'll go through these last uh, six really quickly. Verse 10, it says, honor one another above yourselves. Or if you have the ESV, it translates outdo one another in showing honor. (laughs) I like that translation better because the original Greek had a bit of competitiveness to its meaning. Uh, It literally means to work hard to honor each other more. Or it could be understood, work hard to recognize the value and the preciousness of others. This is important because we know the value of something by which someone is willing to pay for something. And God was willing to pay with his own life to redeem and reconcile his people. So each person here, each person online, is dearly loved and precious to God. So we wanna work hard then to honor one another, always building one another, never tearing one another down. So let me encourage you this week to find ways to honor and esteem and value someone, surprise someone with an act of honor. The sixth implication, we motivate one another. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. As you hear those, just notice the intensity in Paul's words here. Because Christian love isn't cold or indifferent, but it's passionate, it's enthusiastic. And all of these one another's, are, all of these are one another's that we see in Scripture. We're told to pray for one another. We're told to encourage one another. We're told to consider how to. Speak Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. It makes me wonder, like, have you ever been around someone that makes you think, I am, I am a better person for being around them? Because these are the kinds of relationships that we want to have, and these are the types of people that we want to be. And because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within the Christians and dwells in the Christian community, this could be true. So I want to encourage you that this may be the guide for your life and your relationships, to live passionately, to live sold out for Jesus so that others may know him more, love him more, and look more like Jesus because they're around you. The seventh implication, we share with one another. Verse 13, it says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Simple truth, God is a giving God probably the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16 begins, for God so loved the world that he gave. Everything belongs to God. And in his love, he graciously provides us both to meet our needs as well as for us to steward in service and in love toward other people. And the word translated "share" here comes from the Greek word root koinonia, which you know often as fellowship. And most often, this specifically refers to sharing your life, sharing your resources with other Christians. And I saw an example of this just on powerful display when I visited a church in Haiti, back when I worked in international development. And here was a community that lived financially day to day, but they established a savings program where each week they set aside money so that when any, anyone in their community had a dire situation or an unexpected cost, they would be able to provide for them. And COVID created that. And they, because of what they had done, they were able to meet the needs of their fellow Christians. So now consider how much more this should be the case with us in our affluence. We all have so much to share. At the least, we have our skills and we have our time. Because being a part of a Christian community involves contributing to one another and means in which we are providing for one another. And when we share with one another, we are reflecting the generous nature of our God. And Paul continues saying that sharing with one another includes practicing hospitality. Now, when Paul says practicing hospitality, he's not referring to what many of us think when we use the word hospitality. It's not entertaining people. Paul means it's about serving and loving one another. In this passage, hospitality literally means loving strangers. So let me encourage you to be hospitable here. When you have new people that come in, greet them. Make them feel welcomed, make them feel loved. And use your homes and your apartments as well as places for people to be known, places where people can belong. You don't need fine china, you can use paper plates, you don't need Kobe beef, you can serve them ramen. But it's amazing how lives can be changed by simple things. Like a meal like a long chat after game night, after just opening up your lives to other people. Because the reality is, each person here at one point was a stranger to one another. But because of the gospel, we have been brought together. And we can experience this reality as a faith family, bought by God. The eighth and ninth implication, we're going to do these two together. They're rejoice with one another and mourn with one another. As verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. The truth is, the Christian community should be a sympathetic family. When someone is celebrating, we celebrate with them. When someone in our midst is grieving, we grieve with them. We're not cold, we're not separated from each other. We are one body. We know each other's lives and we feel each other's feelings. And unlike so much of the people in the world around us, we're not in competition with one another. So we don't envy one another's successes, we rejoice together. Would you say this is true of your life? Who do you know in your Christian community that would rejoice with you in your highs? Who do you know in your Christian community that who will mourn with you in your lows? Now, I'm guessing that across this room and those online that perhaps some names come to mind. But I also assume that there are some of you here, not many, that that might not be the case. Well, simple thing is, hey, let's work toward changing that by being that type of people for others. So how do we rejoice with those who are rejoicing? Well, when your friend gets that promotion, or they get engaged, or they have the baby, we celebrate with them. We praise God for that good news, and we celebrate what God is doing in them, and we come alongside them, and we support them, and we encourage them. And how do we mourn with those who mourn? It's often harder to think about. We don't like trouble. We like to put it away. But we do this by being present. We do this by sympathizing. You don't have to have all the right answers. I know that's often a seeking point. At the least, you can be present. Because we are an interconnected body. And the last implication that we're going to see in Romans chapter 12 is this. We endure with one another. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. It's easier said than done, right? Like no community is going to be perfect aside of glory. And if we ever, we did find this fantasy community, we would ruin it by bringing in our own brokenness. We are a community of flawed and broken people. We carry baggage and wounds that are certainly heavy which is why harmony necessitates humility. The next word says, do not be proud. Instead, we wanna reflect our savior, who the one who unites us in community, who Philippians 2 said, Jesus did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, we should value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. In our relationship, with one another, we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the one that unites us together in community. That's a beautiful picture. So friends, I want to encourage you to continue to work toward cultivating a a community with vulnerability, of openness, of transparency, of mutual service with one another. Now, I know this could be hard. The truth is we could go faster alone, but we could go further together. We need each other. And the most important thing that we could ever offer one another is a life committed to Jesus. Because we need Jesus, even as we're thinking through how to obey these commands, these gospel implications. Because the goal isn't for you to hear all these gospel implications and to leave here prideful, thinking, hey, I think I'm doing these pretty well. Or to leave ashamed, being like, man, these things just aren't a reality in my life. Because these gospel implications of a community can only be experienced when we submit our lives to Jesus, and he does a transforming work in us. Because the truth is, our love is often shallow. But Jesus' love is genuine. We, our affections and our motives are often mixed. But his affections are pure. We don't always show honor. But Jesus bore our shame as he lifts us up. And our hearts are often fickle. But we serve Jesus who endured faithfully even to the point of death on the cross, to redeem us. And though we're so often tempted to draw lines, Jesus is the one who brings harmony between all people and all nations. And though we are often proud, Jesus is the one who humbled himself, associating with the lowly, and not only unites us with himself, but also with the people. So friends, I want to just encourage us all to look to Jesus who models this pattern of love and also gives us the power to be this type of people. So, Imprint Community Church, in this new year, I want to encourage you to continue to cultivate and work toward being that, being and experiencing an interconnected, gospel-centered community that you are afforded in Christ. God bless you guys. Let's pray.